You are now tuned in to Hollywood Ways with Doug and Breezy. Oh, hey, Ted. I know that you like the lies, know you like the way it shines. There's no other place you'd rather be. This is how we do it in Hollywood. Hollywood this is how we do it. Welcome to Hollywood Ways. I am Doug Ellen, and we're back in Action Park Studio. I've got my shelter dog, Boo, that I uh, adopted last week here. And I've got one of my cinematographers from Entourage, my friend from the American Film Institute in 1992, somewhere around there. Yeah, we're old. Dave Perkle. What's up? What's up, Doug? Oh, you know, I just uh, it was an exciting day. The Rams just really got me excited, as you remember. And I don't, I don't know if you did that episode or if you're even still around. I think you might have left us by that point. But we, we did an episode on Entourage where Ari's bringing a, a football team back to uh, L.A. It excites me. I mean, you know, I grew up a Rams fan before I was a Giants fan, actually. So I'm, I'm just, I feel enthused about this win. I know you're miserable because you're a Charger fan, but well, the Chargers took it a little bit further than everybody thought they were going to take it. I think they did great this year. I don't, so I don't even we'll, remember anything we'll about the Chargers tonight. this year. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, they had less fans at that stadium than uh, the Clippers usually have. So right. Was, well, you know, they're sharing SoFi. You called that. Yeah. The yep. Super Bowl is going to be there. Yeah. You going to go? Yeah, you're buying tickets. You told me you were going to buy tickets. That was the deal. I am not going, and I'm not going because, as Ted Foxman knows, we are getting ready to shoot. We're now 22 days out, I think. Is that right? Uh, no, I think it's 23. Okay. Right. And Ted, Ted, who's uh, you know, I'm financing this with, more him than me, but he went into a panic because last night I posted on Instagram that we're two days away from shooting. I, I saw think, that. I think I had an edible, and he was like, what's going on? You know. So, uh, But, Ted, you're in the loop. Everything is happening. Uh, Breezy is shooting All-American, so she's not here today, but I'm pretty sure she's in the show. So we, uh, we're trying to work out dates so she can be in the show, and I've written a character specifically for her. She's freaking awesome, and uh, it's going to be great. So what I want to talk to Dave Perkle about today is really specific cinematography, and we can talk a little bit about your career, but uh, more specifically about this project, which we're not going to go into the plot of it or what it is, but how, you know, I gave you a script, what, five weeks ago, six mm-hmm. weeks ago, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, you've seen the evolution of the script, and mm-hmm. you've been—you've actually had some really good notes. Which you know, your cinematographer to me is like—it's the most important thing after the cast <laughs> that I can have at my disposal to make sure, as a director, that I can get what I want and what I need, and can help me, you know, execute the vision that I—I I have in my head, but I have absolutely no ability to do. So, tell me how how you kind of approach it when you get a script. Well, that's funny you say that because Jodie Foster says that cameras lead guitar. So. Right. Right. So, so um, no, it was great because you sent me the outline of the script and a couple of versions, and then we had lunch, and you said you're thinking about doing this something, and it started as a scene, and then it evolved into the script, and then it's really like – it's an amazing script. It's one of the best scripts I've read this decade. I yeah. like that. You hear that, Ted? Money, I did. Money well spent. <laughs> Dave, he, Ted thinks it's a setup, but you know, the, the truth is – and, and Dave, you know, something you, – you know, it's a tough thing in this town to give real opinions to people, especially when they're, they're hiring you and you're – going to be getting paid but dave did i did a first draft which he was very happy with gave Wait, some dave is notes. getting paid <laughs> Wait, what <laughs> so but i did a first draft that dave was very happy with and then i did a second draft um which i knew you know i brought in uh um, mark abrams and we really deep dove the 
the details of the story and the characters. Obviously, we had a great framework to start with. We were already running and gunning. But, you know, when you really get in the weeds and you really work it out. So Dave, I sent it to him at like 9 o'clock. And Dave's great. He reads it like instantaneously. But there's, uh, there's some people in this town who might not take this. So Dave called me and, and was like, yeah, it's good. It's good. And I can tell you had issues. And you did have some really smart thoughts about it. So let's talk about that for a minute. When you have a director of some note, okay, who gives you a script and tells you this is a ghost show, how comfortable are you? Are you normally like that? Or is it because we're friends for 30 years that you felt okay doing that? I mean, look, we've been friends for 30 years. And part of the thing that we went through when we went to film school and stuff like that, it was kind of like that scene in The Doors, you know, where everybody's ragging on everybody. And, it, you know, our film school was brutal with the comments, you know. so Some say I look like Morrison, by the way. I'm just saying. Right. Some comments. say. Some say. Some but, um, no, I mean, I think it's because I've known you that long that I'm like, look, if you're going to do this, this is, these are my honest thoughts about it. These are my honest thoughts about the character development, where it's going, what I think works, what doesn't work. And uh, I feel comfortable saying that. Like, if somebody was, if a studio gives me a project and they said, this is a go, I assume it's already been vetted the script's already been vetted and so then i would just talk to the director about like you know character wise what it means for that character because all cinematography is supporting the character in the stories right so i need to know you know uh where the character is developing where they're going what the intent of the scene is what the dramatic structure is and the tension between that scene is and uh and then that involves and invokes uh, my decisions on what I'm going to do lighting-wise so right. I can support that. And for me, obviously, the the scripts I usually write are very character-driven, very dialogue-driven, and which is a different thing for than some of the giant stuff you've done with a lot of action and a lot of things like that. So is, is there a different approach to that? Does that give you uh, – does it give you less excitement when you have a, a, a kind of smaller story like that, or what do you prefer? Well, look, I mean, I prefer a great script. So there's great scripts in many forms and different genres. You know, obviously, you you excel at the genre that that, that you work under. Um, and then, like, I just got off a big sci-fi thing, you know, where we would spend months and months and months talking about 30 seconds of footage. You know what I mean? And then what was it, it? It was called Cowboy Bebop right, on, for Netflix. Right. So we had a fight scene that was seven days of shooting. You shot one, one fight scene. For seven days. <laughs> so and, you had a fight scene in Entourage. We had three hours to get it done. Connelly, holy moly. Connelly and Reese Coiro at uh, – uh, at uh, Barney's, <laughs> right? No, but um, what I like is you know you have the you have a talent for dialogue, you know, and that dialogue flies, and I think that's how you get so many well-known actors to want to be involved in this. And like you said, like you know, I read the script and I called you right back because it really reads really really fast, you know. So I think that that's interesting, and I think I think the tenets of the character development and where they are are, are heartfelt in this. And I think it's something that's missing on the landscape of what's happening in TV right now. And so I'm excited about this project because it says so many things about what needs to be said and what's missing from television right now. And um, I think it's going to be huge. Well, I I don't like to jinx anything like that. And I swear Ted thinks because Ted – Ted's a, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people tell me I shouldn't stereotype ourselves anymore, Ted. But Ted and I are both neurotic negative Jews. And I actually feel really confident about this because – I am not. Well, I'm an undercover Jew, so I mean, <laughs> I know true. what you're looking at, but yeah. can you believe that? By the way, this guy does not look like a Jew. Right. I mean, so, right. but anyway, Ted is obviously putting up a good amount of money. He's never really been this deeply involved. You, you've put some money into some projects, but you've never been creatively involved where you get to be involved in the whole process. And you know what I've been saying to him is, you know. Even on Entourage, there were things I was like, did we get this right? Did we, do we have the right pieces in place for different things? 
This one, I just feel it's all coming together. The cast, as we've talked about, you know, Charlie Sheen is is really one of my favorite actors since I was growing up, you know, and and it's not two and a half men because I and I understand the the I appreciate that type of sitcom and people love it to death and I get that. This is a very different type of thing and and I love Charlie when he was doing Wall Street and and Platoon and things like that and now to have Martin Sheen. <laughs> you know, I mean Martin Sheen's one of the great American actors of the last 50 years. Are you excited to light him or what? I, I mean, I'm excited just to see the scene because to have a scene with Martin and Charlie in it and I can't disclose what's actually happening in the scene or what you what they say in the scene. But it's so important to have this, in, not just because they're movie stars, because it, de- it deals with so many common human elements. But that scene is so strong that it, it's got such pull that, that I, I, I defy anybody to have any criticism about that. Someone will. I mean, it's up to us to blow it at that point. Yeah. But to have them do what they do. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, that's why I say I'm really excited about that. And then the crew that we're putting together, which let's talk about that because Dave was really, um, I've talked about this on Victory, the podcast, but Dave was our operator when we started, not on the pilot of Entourage, but on the second episode. And, you know, we ended up with several directors who have become, you know, some of the most successful directors in TV, specifically, you know, Julian Frino and Mark Mylod, and um, who really, you know, both had very different looks actually which is interesting and different ideas of, of how to shoot which you know it, it's wild a little bit to watch the the uh the way entourage kind of grew in different ways and went in different ways but from the beginning you know you were there in helping shape how we shot that show and i want to shoot this similar and the reason is and, I, and i'll talk about this what i wanted to do with entourage when we started was i wanted it to be as realistic as humanly possible. Everyone knows it's obviously a scripted show, although some people thought it was a documentary when we started. But Julian and you really, you know, and Fearberg, who was the cinematographer at the time and you were the operator, really uh, helped shape that. But every one of them, Fearberg, Julian, Mark Mild, will, will talk about you as the best operator in the business. So talk a little bit about operating as opposed to cinematography and, and, and what that entails. Well, I mean, I could talk about both of them together. But what we did on Entourage was Julian and I and and Fearberg, who I love, uh, we just got in a room and we had some actors and some extras and we just kind of said, how is the camera going to move? And we developed this thing. You know, I go, well, let, let me try this. And I call it like give and goes. And it's the way I transition between one character to another character. And you do that effortlessly. And you do that so it doesn't have like a uh, uh, self-conscious notice of what the camera is actually doing. So it's like give and goes in basketball if you're following the ball around, right? And that that turned out to be really successful. And, And the interesting thing about Entourage is before that, there was nothing like that on TV. And so a lot of TV shows in the half hour spectrum of like comedies and stuff like that single camera tried to emulate it, but nobody ever got it right. And it's just a feeling that you have. And so when I look at it, and this is why I like to be informed in the scene, and I like to watch the rehearsal in the scene, and I'm and I know the script, I know what each character wants and what they have to get and where they're going to go in the next thing. But when I'm watching the rehearsal, when I'm watching the blocking of the actors bringing in what they've prepared, you know, emotionally, um, it's like a method process, you know. So I'm emotionally affected by what's happening, and I feel like I'm there. And if I want to bring my subjectivity to it, it just informs how I move the camera. Right. And it's, it's just something that, that, that happened naturally on Entourage, and, it's gonna, and it could happen on this thing also. Yeah. Well, it was very specific that we, we didn't want 
want to do a lot of establishing shots, which right. traditional TV. We didn't want to do a lot of, you know, which we're going to talk about that because Dave and I are going to sit down. What we like to do is we're going to go with some stand-ins and we're going to actually have them in the locations, walk it through as if this is the shooting. And we're going to shoot it on an iPhone, essentially, as if we were shooting it. Now, of course, when the actors come in, things may change or not, but we're going to try to basically know everything that we're doing before that. But, you know, one of the things I want to avoid, because I always, you know, I used to love when Julian would say that. Like, we're not, you see it in movies all the time. You know, you, a waitress walks by with a plate and a the hamburger, worst, worst shot and, and we follow it to our right. lead actors. And by the way, right. you've seen that in Academy Award winning films, guaranteed. But it is something that we always try to avoid, and we try to come into the scenes more naturally, and it was a big thing to always talk about never having unmotivated camera moves. And, right. and explain what that means to you. Unmotivated camera move is something where the camera moves, but it's not motivated by anything in the scene. So, like, if you're following the waitress with a tray of food in, to me, it's a transition that's uninspired. It's unimaginative. It's, it just doesn't go anywhere. You've seen it a thousand times, but it doesn't mean anything. Right. You know, so what we, we, we try to do is, is keep it real as if you're already in the scene, as if you're a character in that scene, if you're with your friends and you're just kind of looking around as if you're part of the, you know, the posse. Again, this show is, is totally different than Entourage, but at the same time, it comes from me, and it is my attempt to be as realistic as the way I see the world now and, and the place where we're in, which it is set in Los Angeles and Hollywood, so we will be dealing with some of that stuff of celebrity and filmmaking and things like that. But like Entourage, this is really about family, friends, and all of, all of that stuff. So tell me about the difference with – because I still want to talk about this seven-day fight scene. I mean, when you go into a show like that, what, what the hell – like I, I'm being very serious now. People go, why don't you direct Aquaman? Why don't you direct – I couldn't fucking do that in a billion years. So what do you talk about for seven days about a fight scene? Like you, Oh, we didn't talk for seven days. We talked for four months. Ugh. And then we it took seven days to execute it. And do you love that though? Is that like filmmaking it's a to you? It's a different process. It's right. kind of like it's kind of like building a ship in a bottle. You know, right. you have to be very detailed, you know, with that in right. order to do that. So you have a, a stunt coordinator that previses the stunt scene, you have a previs animation that goes on, then you have a tech viz that comes from VFX that overlays on all of those scenes so I could see where green screens need to be and stuff like that and how it's going to be all comped together and if somebody's breaking a third axis plane which means they're moving in three dimensions like if somebody's flying over a roof and then coming down the side of the building you've changed the axis now and so how do you actually make that transition so we have discussions about that and, and right. tests that go on about that so it's a different process you know right. what I mean see for me and, and it's interesting when I talk to my cinematographer because I love cinematography it is something I've said often on podcasts if I went back to AFI I would go for cinematography yeah, because said that before. I don't really understand. You can't teach someone to direct. And people have different ways they would go about it. But for me, often, and you know this on set, I close my eyes and I listen. We've discussed the shot, and I want to hear the words because that's what's important to me. And I want to trust you, the operator, whoever else, that we got the shot that we think. Is that is that unnerving to you, or does that free you to feel like you have more control than you would with uh, kind of a director who's you know obsessed with every fucking frame and... Well, I mean, I always, I, I'm always a second set of eyes, and I'm looking at things that probably you're not looking at, you know. And and a, D, a good DP or an operator will always notice things that are 
have to do with the photography of the shot and how the shot's moving and if they see things and we we will see things that you normally won't see like on first pass and we'll say wait a minute go back let's look at this again this thing happened during the shot are you okay with that Mm -hmm. you know because you need to focus on that the actors need to focus on their performance you need to focus on on getting the script in and i need to focus on the photography and that's why it takes so many people because we're all second set of eyes in there you know it's a shame you just can't do this on your own like that's well you 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 can but it's it's better when you when you can do something like that yeah. so yeah um but it's but it's great you know having this crew come back together again you know you, you mentioned there's a lot of people that are coming back and what's great about that is because we already know that we have synergy and i think that's the, the key to success because you can have a great script you can have uh, somebody that's the best at what they do in each of these departments but if there's no synergy if there's no coming together of everybody yeah. then the project doesn't seem to like elevate itself yeah. into something it really that's great. is it really is a team thing and and you know the way i thought about entourage was it was a family and you know everybody the best idea wins doesn't matter who it comes from it Absolutely. doesn't matter where it comes from and and we're all kind of like we had such a good time shooting that show you mm-hmm. know and i think that's why so many people are ready to come back and and, and get into it again which hopefully will have a, a long run but we'll see what happens Hulu has the shows and movies you love and is committed to providing a platform for black stories to continue to be seen with the Hulu Black Stories Hub. Watch Women of the Movement, produced by Sean Carter and Will Smith, and all seasons of Snowfall and Atlanta. Catch up on Queens, Grand Crew, Blackish, and Abbott Elementary. Binge RuPaul's Drag Race, Powered, Queen Sugar, Tyler Perry's Have and Have Nots, Hulu Originals, Wu-Tang, and American Saga, Woke, and more. With all those plus classics like Living Single and Family Matters, docuseries like Your Attention, Please, and Black Love, and Hulu original movies like The United States vs. Billy Holiday and Onyx Collective's award-winning documentary, Summer Soul, you can find stories and storytellers that highlight and celebrate black history, past and present, on Hulu's Black Stories Hub, 365 days a year. Hulu subscription required. Terms apply. So I spoke to you, so tell me how this works for you. Sideways has been my inspiration for this show, even though it has nothing to do with wine and it has nothing to do with uh, a lot of the elements that are in Sideways. But I've been trying to come up with my sideways midlife crisis comedy drama for like 10 years. And it started out, so everyone knows, I was going to, just like my career started out, when Dave Perkle convinced me to do this short film after AFI. And I was going to star in it, write and direct it, and John Cryer came in and said he wanted to play my part, and and that was the end of my acting career. And the same thing happened now, because I started getting all these amazing actors wanting to do this thing, and obviously I'm excited about that. But when I, I talk to you about Sideways and I show you that, and and I want to get into that we decided we're going to shoot on film, which a lot of people are not doing anymore. So tell, tell me when you looked at Sideways, how do you take that from me that I say I want to feel this kind of vibe and I want to get this kind of realism? What, what, what do you go with? With that, so the first thing I did is I watched Sideways again, right? And the next thing I did was I went to uh, Shot Deck, who's uh, uh, it's a website that that was built by my friend Larry Schur, who was up for an Oscar. He's another cinematographer, and he shot The Joker and he shot um, The Hangover, and he started this site where they just pull movie frames down, and I can I can access something like I could write Yellow Flare, and all the movies with Yellow Flare will come in, and I could build a, start building a lookbook. So That's what unreal. I did was as I as I pulled up Sideways and I start I pulled down all the relevant relevant shots for that. And then I start pulling and then I look at sideways and I go, okay, well what is it that attracts Doug to this film, right? So it's obviously the tenets of character that are in there, you know, um, some of it's the texture, some of it's the subjectivity 
uh, which is played against the objectivity in, in that film. And so all of those things become relevant. So it's not just a photograph. You don't say like, well, he's attracted to this photograph, right? Because are you attracted to the texture, the color? What Are you attracted to the depth of the, fi- the field in there? Are you attracted to the graphic nature of the photograph and stuff like that? So what I'm trying to do is understand exactly what you're attracted to in there using the script as a guideline. And then you'll mention other films. And so even if you mention a film and it has nothing to do specifically with a specific, you know, with a scene in here, I'll look at that just to kind of get in your head and kind of get that. So then I'll also start pulling other scenes from other movies that I think could be relevant. And what I'll do in the end is I'll, is I'll build a lookbook. And so the lookbook, I'll say, like, these are the, the scenes that I'm thinking, this is how it's relative to each one of these scenes, and I'll build a lookbook. And I share that with you, and you'll make some comments about that. And then I'll, I'll talk to Chase Harlan, who's our production designer, and I'll say, these are some of the looks and the palette that we're looking at right now. What do you have going on? And he may say, well, look, I'm, I like that palette, but I'm looking at something over here also. And I say, okay, well, I can, I can collaborate with you on that, and we could come up with this. Um, but when we were looking at film, you know, we were kind of looking at, like, you know how does this actually um, how does it actually relate and how is it appropriate for what we're doing and thematically it's appropriate and I can't really say why because I'd be giving away the story which is <laughs> like a little when we do the follow up after it's out yeah. well, I'll tell you exactly why so yeah. hang in there but it's great to be using film again you know and a lot of people are coming back to film right now you know Kodak can't keep up. Uh, making film right now still photographers it's amazing though because i do uh i do still photography also and i develop my own film and i do that all at home and 10 years ago when i went to go buy film chemicals i was the first in line now there's a line of professional photographers that are moving back to it so So why do you think that is well, I think that people are exhausted with with um, with only having one choice, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, film is an is an organic two step process, you know, whereas digital is a three step process. They keep talking about the chip, the chip, the chip, um, and and film's a more organic feel, you know. And when you're talking about like I want to have this organic and have it feel real, you know, it just kind of lends itself to that. There are a couple other reasons that I can't disclose because of the script of why this is appropriate. And then the next step, what I do is I land on a camera package, and I've been working with a bunch of camera houses around town. And so this one, we decided to go to Panavision. So David Dotson, who's the head of Panavision over there, got me with um, Dan Sasaki, who's the head lens tech. And um, I started talking about looks and feels and, and, and what I wanted texture-wise from these lenses. And so we landed on a couple sets of lenses, and then we're going to now go fine-tune them. So he's going to break them up and make them bespoke just for our project. So Dan is building lenses right now. What he's doing is he's taking old lenses apart. We talked about the lenses they used on Sideways. We talked about the look. I shared with him some other ideas that I had for for looks. And uh, we landed on a set. He's going to tweak them per my requests about what I want to see in the photography. And then we're going to go out and we're going to test them and see how they look. And everybody should take a look at Sideways. If you haven't seen it, it's such a great movie. Alexander Payne is, I mean, he co-wrote the screenplay, I believe, based on a book, but also directed it. But he's such an amazing writer, filmmaker, everything. And, and you know, it, it, like we talked about it, like the opening shot of the movie, the star of the movie, it's like from behind his head. You don't even see him. And right. tell me why you think, why, why do you think, that is. What do you think that choice is about? Well, it's, you know, I mean, you could say the evolution is that is from noir. You know what I mean? It's what you see and, and, and what you don't see. And it's when you reveal what you actually need to reveal. And so that's really the art of filmmaking, right? So what we don't want to do is one, we don't want to flip over our hand right on the first shot, right? So in the beginning of Sideways, you don't really know who he is, but, but his actions are defining the character within that shot. And, and his built, environment. 
Yeah, and you're yeah. And, and you're building that one at a time, and that's what what was so successful with Entourage. That's why we didn't need an establishing shot. You know, we built that as we went, and you kind of got a, a feel for the place that they were in, and it was also kind of cool, like because of the the storyline. If you knew, you knew. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so that that was effective. But but yeah, I think in Sideways, I mean. I got to watch it again. I think like there's not a real close up of Giamatti, like real close up until like 15, 20 minutes in the movie. And it's a big dramatic moment. And his face is so striking. Now, obviously, Giamatti is such an amazing actor that he brings a lot to it. But I think the hold off for that from that shot to, to make you really wait to look deep into this guy's eyes, it has a, a major impact, especially on a big screen, you know. So I, right. So what they did subtly in that thing, and I don't know if you noticed it or not, but they had an incredible deep depth of field at the beginning, and they shortened that through the movie. Uh, you know what? I don't know that I noticed that. When you relook at it and you start to look at some of the stills, that's what they did in that. I know that you know Sidney Lumet talked about that for um, Twelve Angry Men. All right. So so what else? What else can we approach as we we're now twenty one days away from this? We're going to go block this whole thing out. What else do you think you and I need to do so other people can learn when they're going out and making their films that uh, really cover all bases before you get on set? Because the reality is once you get on set, the clock starts running, the bills start going, and all this quiet fun time is stressed and crazy, you know? so Right. So pre-production is the most important part. It's the cheapest part of production. It's where all the answers are made, all the mistakes can be made, and it doesn't cost you anything. So what what you need to do is you need to go out, like we're going to go do, and we're just going to creatively riff. Nobody could be wrong. Nobody could be right. Let's pitch this idea, spitball about that, and see if something works, right? And then the actual production of the, the show is when you're just executing your plan. You know, sure you have cha- you have you have a chance to change your plan. You could you could ameliorate it in any way, but you really want to have everything settled in pre-production so that you can go. And that's the, that's the the cheapest way to do it. Right. And and you can't do enough of that. Yeah. In your looking, what other influences have you thought about over the last couple of weeks since you read this script about tones and about looks of this film? Are there any other movies that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks? Well, I liked uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, and, and I like films for different reasons. You know, it's not so much that it's the story exactly. You know, I like the film Last Round because of some particular shots in there. I don't know Last Round. What Last Round is the, the uh, I think it's a Danish film uh, where the guys d- decide that they each have to have a drink every day and they have to keep going. But it has nothing to do story-wise with you. But photography-wise yeah, yeah. for me, there's some elements in there that I thought were appealing. Just like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's yeah. some elements in there that are well, definitely I love, photographically I, I mean, appealing. I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Forget the story again, but the look of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the retro throwback. That you know uh, had to be film. I mean, it just film, one hundred percent, and it just looks so rich and so real, you know. And and it puts you back in a time, which is what you know. What's so great that Quentin does is you know this is a fake story. You know he's taking real people and doing things with them that did not happen, but it feels so real that you're like, huh? <laughs> you know, that would have been really yeah. I mean, Quinn's a, Quinn's a great person to study. You know, just to study his shots. You know, you turn off the sound, you watch watch a scene. And you just watch it over and over, and then and then you could turn the sound back on. But like even in Kill Bill, like when the two girls come in to fight in the kitchen, if you watch, it's you watch and think of a metronome clicking, clicking, clicking. It's one, two, three, cut. One, two, three, cut. One, two, three, cut. He has a musical um, symbiotic relationship with the action. 
it cuts on that certain timeline. And he doesn't need more than that. He doesn't need to, to, to occlude it with more stuff than he actually uh, actually is relevant in the scene. And he keeps it very simple, and it works once it's put together. Yeah. So I love watching his stuff. For yeah, me. I mean, it's the best. And, and also, you know, Quentin, like I said, he's you can watch his movies with the TV off and listen to the sound, and it's right. amazing. And you could watch just visually, and it's amazing. So I'm hoping... We're going to have both on this, Dave. So you're going to be responsible for the visuals because I feel pretty good with the dialogue now. But, you know, and we're, we're talking about opening this up uh, with a one which, you know, is always a complicated thing. And especially when you're, you know, I talked about this last week on the show, but, you know, at AFI, I don't know if you remember, but the actually, I do want to bring this up to you. But I did this film at AFI that you remember, which was making fun of the school. And AFI was, <laughs> AFI was basically this mini Hollywood. It was really hard to get in. When I got in, my parents finally looked at me like I had achieved something in my life because right. my brother went to Harvard Law and they really don't take people. And we had some very awesome people in our class. But I didn't like the place. I didn't like the way I thought they treated anybody, to be honest with you. And I made this thing that kind of mocked it. And everybody was pretty scared to even work with me. You know, do you remember that? Yeah, like what was yeah. going on? <laughs> you weren't I, on that project. You were doing <laughs> Todd Fields, I think, right? Which, right, I was. Yeah. Todd Field, who's an Academy Award winner, nominee for mm-hmm. um in the bedroom. In the bedroom and the other one, which is uh, uh, Little Children. Little Children, yeah. yeah. So great filmmaker. But um what was the film school experience like for you? Well, I thought it was great. I mean, if you look at our class, the class is a stellar class. Like you said, they didn't let everybody in, and it's a small group of people. You know, Darren Aronofsky, Scott Silver, Mark Waters, uh, Rob Schmidt, um, um, you know, I mean, Matty Liebetik, who's a great cinematographer, oh, yeah. Antonio Calvacci, who's a great cinematographer, Stups, Langensteiner, who's, who's – I'd like uh, to see Stups. Do you speak to Stups? I do. So yeah. Stups was my friend at AFI. I haven't seen him in probably 15 years, but he was a great cinematographer and, and a good guy too. So Yeah, he's a big commercial DP. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, so film school was great for me. You know, yeah. I mean, I, 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 had a, I had a great time. Um, but it was tough, you know? I mean, what they did was they sent us out. They used to have these things called cycle projects. They'd send us out. We'd shoot a story, a half-hour story in four days. We'd have four days to edit it. And then you would basically stand in front of the class for four hours, and you couldn't say anything. And they could just <laughs> hurl insults at you or laud you with, with great compliments. Yeah, I, and you couldn't say anything. And then you went in front of the faculty, and they did it again for another four hours. So it was yeah. exhausting. Yeah. You know, you either got told, like, I don't know why you're here. You're a dilettante. You should go home. <laughs> Or you were told you were a genius. Yeah. You know? And that was, I mean, my first film there, which I did with uh, Joey Slotnick, who's a great comic actor, and David Schwimmer way before uh, before Friends. and um, Way before, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and, and I, I did this film, and if you remember, it was my first cycle project. Everybody laughed, and I felt great. And I was probably the only one making a comedy at all. Nobody was making comedies at all. And then I sat up on that stage, and all of a sudden, Deju, who was our, our very uh, tough Hungarian uh, – what was he? He was the the, the, he was the dictator. Director, yeah. <laughs> director, I guess yeah. you call it. Yeah. But he, he swayed the whole conversation. And it, it to me, and listen, I was 22. I was probably sensitive. but You were, it did, you were good looking then too. <laughs> I was. Yeah, I had a lot of hair. <laughs> yeah. It did not feel um, um, very uh, um, constructive. It felt very fucking harsh, you know? And it felt like you were sitting there while 200 people were out there and but we had a teacher there, Stuart Rosenberg, who mm-hmm. I literally brought this up to Kevin Connolly at dinner Saturday night. I love that guy so much. 
he was worth every ounce of the film school. And if you can find that one guy and he directed the Pope of Greenwich Village and Cool Hand Luke and a million episodes of television and was really honestly brilliant. And um, he said, you don't travel with your film. Like you don't get to justify it. You don't get to say what I meant was or you don't understand it. It plays and people are going to judge it and you got to sit there and take it. So I think part of that thing was almost like boot camp to realize what real Hollywood would be like. And I guess it still didn't help me because when I get criticized by the critics, I fucking hate it still. So it didn't really do much for me. But I then made that film that was making fun of it. And I, I remember I, you, you had already done one of my films, so you couldn't even be my cinematographer. But do you remember like people were scared to work with me? They were like they thought they wouldn't get invited back to the next year, you know? Well, I mean, yeah, you were challenging the system like you do. You challenge Hollywood, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's what makes it great, you know. And it was a great it was a great project. It but was. I, I I do remember Deju, he tried to analytically like tear apart your your film. He's like, "Oh yeah, it's funny, but why is it funny? Yeah. If you want funny, I'll come over and tickle you." Yeah, that was the first one. Yeah, he was uh and that's why I made the 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 project that was about them sitting up there and I showed The Wizard of Oz as my film and it just got abused and then we had a girl in our class that they kept Comparing to Scorsese. Like, Deju kept comparing her to Martin Scorsese. Do you remember that? Yeah. And I was like, I would watch her films. Again, everybody is entitled to their opinions. But I would know if they're Scorsese. And I don't know where she's at now, but she's not Scorsese, right? Like, I mean, the important thing to remember about film school is it's like it, they create this insular environment where you start competing against the other people in film school. Yeah. And that's really not the real world. Right. The real world is you got to go out there against everybody in the world and prove that you're a filmmaker. Right. So, um, so you felt it was coddling and sheltering. Well, I, I think that you could get sucked into that, you yeah. know, and I think that that's not the real world. Yeah. So as soon as you get out, you're like, wait a second, I'm not, I'm not competing against twelve other people here. Yeah. So. All right. So before we go, for people who are listening who want to be cinematographers or filmmakers, what's your little piece of advice to get into this business? You're 20 years old, 21, and you really love film and television. What, what's what's your advice? Well, you know, I get asked this a lot. So. I went to film school, and then when I left, I started at the bottom, and I worked as a gaffer, and I worked as a camera loader, and I worked as a second, then as a first, then as an operator, and then finally DP. You can do it anyway. You don't have to go to film school. You can just start as a DP, or you can work your way up. But I will say, for me, having that education as a background, having an undergraduate degree in film, going to AFI, having advanced um, education, uh, then starting at the bottom and learning from other cinematographers on the crew was invaluable. Yeah. So there is no one way to do it. But I will tell you, you know, when you want to be a director of photography, what does director of photography mean? Well, you're directing the audience's attention, using your photography to what's important in the scene, right? Like a director is directing the actors and the frame to what's important uh, from the frame, you know, as as it relates to the story. So if you think about it that way, it's not just a collection of cool shots. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... And and what makes you, Dave, because there's been some amazing directors who've come from being cinematographers. Um, do you want to direct at some point? And what, what, how is it when a cinematographer um, decides, you know what, this is what I want to do and I'm willing to kind of be deferential to this other guy that may or may not be, you know, even better than you? Like, what, how do you go about that? Well, I mean, it, my job is to serve the director mm -hmm. as a director of photography. Yeah, to you're kind of get serve his, me. Yeah, oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> serve me some soup. <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, 
anyways, is it's it's to fall in line with 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 a creative vision and a creative path that we all align with. You but do you I mean? have a desire to direct at some point? Does yeah, part sure. of you go, why don't I do? Why don't I just go direct? Sure, because I I feel like I understand story and I know yeah. character and I and I and I understand how to how to put two shots together. You know, what I mean, I yeah. have all the 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 skills available to do that. Because um, I guess what my point is because. You know, AFI, which again, it's a, it's a great school. And by the way, I haven't been there in 20 years, so I'm sure it's it's different than it was. But there was screenwriting, there was directing, there was production design, there was editing, and there was cinematography. And I think for anyone young who really wants to be a filmmaker, and of course, like you said, there's a million ways to do it. I did it. I just went out and made a film. I didn't know what I was doing, and I found people who were better than me to, to help me. But the idea of really learning the trade and really understanding it, which like I wish I could fucking light the scene and go, fuck you, Dave, you know, like John Sayles. <laughs> I used to look at John Sayles films and it's like written, directed, uh, edited, cinematography. Every, he did everything. And I was like, I would love to do that. But, Soderberg, yeah. yeah, but it, it's Soderbergh. But it is, it is mostly a collaborative process. But I think for anybody that's doing any of this stuff, the more you can learn about every person's job, even if you're not going to be good at it, it would be beneficial for the whole process. Oh, guaranteed. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, but I mean, if you if you really want to be a cinematographer, then be a cinematographer. If you want to learn everybody's job, then then there's a lot of other jobs where you could kind of get a taste of what everybody does. And mm-hmm. and really, what you're doing is you're finding out what that person needs, how they collaborate with somebody else, and how you can effectuate that process. Right. You know what I mean? To yeah. try and to try and enable them to elevate the process. Right. You know, which has a lot to do with producing. You know, you you have a an idea of what everybody does, and you're giving them all the elements that they can have and use and need, so they can elevate the project. And Make it better than it appears on paper. Right. And I told Ted today, producing lesson, producer Ted, is to keep the talent focused and on point. Because right right now, I mean, my day today, we just put this together in 10 minutes. I I thought I had this five-hour doctor appointment today, and I walked into the doctor, and, uh, and they were like, David? I'm like, Doug. And I instantaneously knew I was there the wrong day, and I planned my entire day around it. But the truth is, I'm now in that that mindset there's so much coming at me already i wake up there's casting tapes to look at there's production design questions there's budgetary concerns there's location meetings to decide and all of it's amazing by the way but you don't have a lot of time to think about other shit so it's really important to you know get organized and and get it on so well there's never enough time in prep yeah there's never people that go well i have so much time in prep i guess i'll just take a vacation at this point and then come back right you know says everything comes up new ideas come up and then new thoughts come about how you're going to shoot a scene like we have a couple scenes that you and i've been talking about we're like how are we going to attach this you know but we haven't really gone through it yet and that's to come and we're going to make a couple we're going to have like three great ideas and and five bad ones and we're going to have to like decipher which one we're going to actually go with yeah but this is the week to really like like we're gonna, we're gonna, like I said, we're gonna get in with these stand-ins, and we're gonna, we're gonna basically shoot this whole thing and see what it looks like. So I'm excited. I'm excited for the project. I'm glad you're back, and it's gonna be a lot of fun. With you know, uh, Perkle's a little bit of a fucking maniac like Dylan. So the two of them, like you know, at a rap party, it's uh, anything can happen. Even though we're getting old now, so right. it's gonna be right. fun, you know. And I'm really excited. So uh, that's Dave Perkle, cinematographer, and um, really, you can check out a lot of his work, but. 
He's been working with me and then fortunately having a great career without me for uh, 30 years. So that wraps up another episode of Hollywood Ways. Um, we'll be back next week. I'm going to maybe bring on uh, some more people that are involved in the, in the production of the new show. And we're getting excited. February 23rd start date. And um, that's it. Awesome. Thank you. He gave me a book on art forgery. I found myself drawn to these old masters. How did these artists take paint from a palette, arrange it on a canvas? I began to unlock the secrets. I was a storehouse of knowledge of how to create an illusion, present it to a experienced expert manipulate his mind and convince him and bring him to the inevitable conclusion that the painting is genuine. We flooded the market with my paintings and I couldn't believe what I did. I couldn't believe it. Then the dominoes started falling and eventually the FBI were led to my door. They uncovered a mountain of evidence against me. But they never actually got you. At this point, you've sold a lot. You've got like a million dollars in cash. You sold one painting for 717000 Why did it go away? Why did you never get indicted? How are we having this conversation? <laughs> I guess that's the greatest story of all. To hear how Ken Perenni made millions in art forgery, dodged the mafia and the FBI, subscribe to The Jordan Harbinger Show and check out episode 282 in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.